Amazon tiene todo lo que necesitas para tu dormitorio, desde productos esenciales hasta ropa y decoración e incluso ropa de cama para... Si, 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 si estás activas. Y si estás regulares también. Ahorra en todo para la universidad en Amazon. This episode is brought to you by Grant Thornton, an audit, tax and advisory firm that gets that cookie cutter thinking doesn't cut it. Grant Thornton listens, uncovering fresh ideas that help you harness every opportunity and stay ready for what's next. More at GT.com. Hello there, welcome to another episode of This Week in History with me, your host, Dan the Viking. Now we've got a bit of a uh, an American show for you today, guys. Uh, for those of you who are on our Facebook group and did see the picture and had a guess, it was quite an easy one, I think, especially for the Americans out there. We are covering possibly one of the most famous battles of all time, and that is the Battle of Gettysburg. Now, the Battle of Gettysburg was fought, in obviously, in Gettysburg. It was fought in uh, the state of Pennsylvania, and it was fought from the 1st of July, 1863, until the 3rd of July. So, if you anybody flashes back to one of my earlier episodes, we covered a little bit about the Battle of Antietam, which was also a Civil War battle. And that was, essentially, the bloodiest day in American history, uh, this the Battle of Gettysburg is classed as the bloodiest battle of history, uh, of American history. Now the reason for that is obviously because it lasted three days rather than just the single day at Antietam. And what we're going to cover this week is we're going to cover a little bit about the battle itself and the reasons behind the battle, and you know, almost why the battle happened specifically in Gettysburg because it was almost a chance that it happened there it wasn't necessarily the there, there wasn't a plan to have a big battle there it was sort of a coincidence almost that that it ended up being there and the reason you know that the civil war uh, for americans has a different reasons for why it started and how it started um it started officially with the firing of confederate troops on fort sumter and that's what sparked the the civil war now the civil war started as a little bit of a spectator sport so you'll find with a lot of the battles that people would come and visit and you know the your general public would watch it and witness it as almost like we would watch TV and no one really believed that this war was going to be A, as long as it was B, as bloody as it was or C, as important to history as it actually was you know, this this battle uh, sorry, this war now, it, it, was, it was huge for, for history it was huge for slavery um, it's something that you know, I think is quite poignant right now. 
Um, the war itself, obviously, it ended up with the Emancipation Proclamation um, and, and obviously the freedom of the slaves in America. Now, like I stated in previous episodes, the Emancipation Proclamation was almost an afterthought from Abraham Lincoln. I mean, he is hailed as this hero who saved the slaves when in reality his main goal bar none was to save the union um and you know there's there's quotes famous quotes from abraham lincoln um where he has said you know if i could save the union by freeing every slave i would do it if i could save the union without freeing a single slave then i would do it slavery was a little bit of an afterthought in reality to the the war but at the end of the day it became the biggest reason for the war towards the end and you know and obviously with the north winning the war um you know that's that's why we we got an end to slavery in america and you know this you've got to put it into a bit of perspective i know i've seen a lot of things in america where um statues of of robert e lee stonewall jackson uh, massive confederate leaders had has been taken down and i think personally that takes away from a lot of the the good that these men actually achieved for the confederate states now to the confederate states i from what information i've read and facts that i've read it was roughly somewhere between 10 and 15% of men who fought in the confederate army actually owned slaves now when you're talking that you're talking the main bulk of the army basically fought for their state i mean robert e lee is is famous for saying that he fought for his state not for slavery um and that's you know that's a big a big thing that i think people do forget uh, i mean i am digressing a little bit so i will get back to the battle of gettysburg because you know i could spend god i could spend hours and hours talking to you guys about the civil war because it's one of my favorite um things in history you know especially being english i know a lot of you you guys i've actually had message from a lot of you guys saying you know you you like to hear about the english history now obviously you guys like to hear about the english history because you know you're probably not taught very much english history in american high schools um in this country we're taught absolutely nothing about american history so when i get an opportunity to learn something um for example like the american civil war um i grab it with both hands and this is a a really you know for me it's it's quite a passion um especially like i said being english and you know believe it or not the battle of gettysburg there was actually an englishman there so that's another thing we shall cover in a little bit but what we'll do, we'll start with, with the Battle of Gettysburg, and we'll start with the 1st of June, sorry, 1st of July, 1863. Now, up until this point, the Confederates were pretty much winning most of the battles that were, that were happening. Um, they were very dominant, and they seemed, it almost looked as if they were going to win the war. However, a lot of the fighting at this time was being done in the southern states now 
this you can look at this both ways you can look at that as the union were pushing the confederates back and therefore although the union might have been losing the battles because the battles were fought in the south officially possibly the union were winning however you can look at it in the sense that the confederates were winning their battles because they knew their terrain they knew their their ground they knew everything about where they were fighting and they had the upper hand in that you know it's a home field advantage almost now the battle of gettysburg was the first battle that robert e lee took his virginia army 75,000 men he took them out of harrisburg uh, virginia and he took them north to pennsylvania and this is where he planned on setting up attacking the union and marching on washington now if he had succeeded in the battle of gettysburg uh history would be very different especially in america obviously what we're going to cover now is the first day of the battle so as we know the confederates 75,000 strong robert e lee's army is marching north um General Meade, the newly appointed commander of the Army of the Potomac, which is the main bulk of the Union Army, has got word of this and is moving south to meet him. And this is where they end up having a the meeting is in the town of Gettysburg. So as they both armies approach the, the town to the west-hand side of Gettysburg... Uh, General Buford of the Army of the Potomac, his cavalry unit starts to move towards uh, General Heath of the uh, Confederates and they start to attack them. Now the Confederates overwhelm the cavalry and they overwhelm the Buford's uh, division and they send them back into the town of Gettysburg. They, They march them back further and further and further and they they end up overrunning the union into the town so as the confederates are are pushing them back the uh, the first corps under commander reynolds uh, arrives to to help out this is the union side and the battle starts to escalate again just outside the town we're not talking in the town itself just to the west hand side of gettysburg and what's happening at the moment is is almost it's hard to imagine this type of battle uh, obviously because nowadays this type of fighting doesn't happen but these guys were yards away you know somewhere between 20 to 100 yards away uh, firing you know almost point blank now Reynolds is at the time or on the battlefield he is the highest ranking general in the Union Army and just as the battle starts to escalate he's shot he's shot in the back of the neck on his horse and he dies uh, he dies on the battlefield as this happens the confederates receive reinforcements from general ewell as, again you're now talking about the battle that started with a little bit a little skirmish between one regiment and a cavalry unit is now escalating to a full-blown battle just outside the city or the town so as this battle's carrying on throughout the day there's uh, other generals from 
both armies, from the, the Army of the Potomac and from, from Lee's Army of Northern Virginia, they are joining the battle as they arrive. You've got to remember, this isn't a, at the start, this isn't a well coordinated attack. This is both armies arriving at Gettysburg at the same time. Now, the reason they both, both armies picked Gettysburg is because there are 10 roads in and out of Gettysburg. It is one of those, at the time, is one of those towns where it's easy to access, it's easy to hold, and, you know, it, it was a good strategic point for both armies. It was, you know, it seemed like a good place, and this is why the, the battle happened there. It, it almost happened by chance that both generals picked Gettysburg as their town to to defend, really. Um, and what's going on at this point is, obviously, the the Confederate army is is winning, you know, Yet again, Robert E. Lee and his army are showing that they are superior on a battlefield, you know, and and this is what the Union was was happening to the Union almost every week, was that they were getting outplayed by the Confederate generals, and and yet again, the the Confederates were pushing the Union back and back and back into the town from both the north, the northeast, and the west of the town pretty much closing in completely the Union into the streets of Gettysburg. Now, it's important to remember that this town is a town, you know. It's not... At the start of this battle, the the people living in this town, I mean, you can't even imagine what must be going through these guys' heads, you know. You've got 95,000 men from one side and 75,000 men from another side all convening on this tiny little town in Pennsylvania ready for a fight so you know this it must have been a a horrific scene for people in the town especially not really knowing what's going to happen you know no one at this time knew what was going to happen at the like I said at the start of the battle the confederates overwhelmed the union and they pushed them back into the town now, as they're pushing them back into the town, the Americans, the the Yankees, the Union, however, whatever you want to call them, um, they retreat. You know, they they do. They retreat further and further away. They retreat through the town and out to the south of the town. And when they get to the south of the town, they end up forming what is known as the Fish Hook. Now, what it is is it's a row of hills just south of the town of Gettysburg where there is the high ground almost for them to oversee what's going on and these are hills which are world famous now which are Cemetery Hill, Cemetery Ridge and so on so these are I mean these are very very important when it comes to the battle which we shall cover in a minute or the the, the rest of the battle shall we speak now the Confederates at this time are urging Robert E. Lee to carry on the fight you know they've got them on the run they've got them running away in a position where really the Confederates can take advantage on the first day and they've they don't they don't take that advantage and they leave the high ground to uh, to the Union now there is an order that Robert E. Lee gives to one of his generals that says, um, take the high ground if if it's sensible to do so. And 
the general in question is a young general who hasn't really been he's not he's not he's new so he's not experienced and he takes that as you know we'll have a look but if i don't think it's safe i'm not going to do it and that's that's what happened you know they didn't they didn't pursue it reality robert ely should have turned around and said go and take the high ground and they didn't they didn't take the high ground and now although they'd won day 1 the confederates are now in a position where their the army's there their army's there meade's army's there the fight is going to happen there but they don't have the high ground they don't have the ability or the the advantage that the union has sorry not the ability they don't have the advantage that the union has there are a couple of stories where Robert E. Lee is told to outflank this fish hook, go underneath it, around, and it's a clear road to Washington. Now, he refuses to do this. He refuses to take that route. And the reason he refuses is because in this day and age, in this time period, they believed that if the army is there, you fight the army that's there. You don't run away. And this is, you know, they again, this goes back to trench warfare in the First World War. This came, a lot of this came because of the way the civil American Civil War was fought. You know, Americans, the generals in, in the armies believed that hiding behind trenches or hiding behind things created cowards. Uh, retreating was cowardice. You know, why would Robert E. Lee, this, you know, powerhouse of a man who's not lost a battle yet in the first two years of the war why would he leave the army that's there and run away to you know it just didn't his attitude was no we're here we fight here and this is where we're fighting and this is where it's going to happen and you know Meade is here this is the commander of the union army if we can take out the commander of the union army or capture them we've won you know that if the confederates had won gettysburg the potential is they were going to win the war so we'll go into the second day and as you look at the fish hook the first corps is at the top of the fish hook uh, howard general howard and his 11th corps is on the curve of the fish hook as it comes down uh, the next general down is general hancock of the second corps and at the bottom is Major Dan Sickles of the second, sorry, his third corps. Um, this Sickles is a very, very important character when we look at this battle. Then, obviously, behind these lines, he has his, his reserve troops ready to fill in any gaps should the gaps arise in the fish hook. But these troops are they're far enough back to not be attacked. So obviously, normally when you you've got troops in reserve, sometimes they they can still be in the firing line. These guys were not in the firing line at all. They were they were there. If a, a breakage happened on the fish hook, if the Confederates managed to get through, then they would go in and fill that gap, and obviously keep the fish hook maintained on the high ground. Now the reason I mentioned Dan Sickles and his Third Corps is because this man nearly blew the entire operation out of the water 
So what he did was he moved his his third core, he moved them out of the line and he moved them down the hill. Now he moved them into what's known as the peach orchard um, and he left them there to fight. Now he he did that because his artillery or his cannons were in better range there. So this is what he believed was the right thing to do even though he was ordered not to do that. Now the problem with that is he's now created this massive gap in the in the fish hook and should the confederates break through that then he's weakened the entire operation that that uh, that Meade has put into place. Now Sickles doesn't have the manpower to to fight off the rebels in this in this situation and he starts to lose ground when this happens Meade has to send in the reinforcements now bearing in mind this is roughly at the start of the second day so you know you're talking about a battle that lasted three days and pretty much at the start of the second day one of his generals has fucked everything up so he's now got to send these reserves from reserve to fill in the gaps that me um, that Sickles has made and this causes a real problem for the Union obviously this is something that Robert E. Lee has spotted and he sends the full force of Longstreet General Longstreet, he sends the full force of his army to attack this mistake that's been made and you know he, he then fo- the focus of the second day was pretty much round there and that's that's where he he forced the main bulk of his army to this point to try and break that mistake and if like I said if if they they got through they would have completely blown Meade's fish hook out of the water and they would have blown potentially blown that battle completely dead for the union so at the bottom of this fish hook there are two very very important battles that are taking place and one is a point in the battlefield called Devil's Den Uh, Devil's Den is occupied at the start by the Union and it changes hand three times during the battle so it's really really important that the Union keep hold of this this point on the battlefield and they do you know they do keep hold of it but they did lose it a couple of times during the battle as well at the bottom of the map, at the bottom of the fishhook, is a part called Little Round Top. Now, Little Round Top, I've heard of prior to this, prior to learning about it, and I'm sure most of you guys have. Now, this is where the Texas and Alabama infantry are attacking. How they attack it over and over and over and over again, constantly attacking this single point. If because it's at the bottom of the map or the bottom of the the fish hook if they can break the bottom then you can you can sweep up up the side very hard to maneuver troops to a different completely different situation on a battlefield so if they took little round top they can push all the way up the fish hook pretty much easily and um, the problem is the guys who are on Little Round Top at the moment, the Union soldiers that are there, they're the reserves that has had to be pushed there. This is the Fifth Corps from Maine, and these guys were not not necessarily 
ready for the battle at this point. You know, they they were told they were going in reserve. They were told to sit back, pretty much put your feet up, chill out, and be ready to fight. Not 20 minutes into the battle, get your ass in there because we've screwed up. And this is what they had to do. And over and over again, they were getting attacked by Texas and by Alabama. Now, the what was happening... They were repelling these attacks over and over again and they were running out of ammunition because it was happening over and over again. Every time they were running out of ammunition and they knew that they would not be able to withstand another attack. So the officer in charge told the main soldiers to fix bayonets and they thought you know this is this is suicide we're not we've not got the the ammunition to fire we've not got the the ability to beat these if they if they come at us again the only option is is to make a one heroic last stand and <clears throat> that's what they plan to do turns out that as soon as they fixed bayonets and charged down the hill at the confederates the confederates were so surprised by this they were expecting another volley of fire that they they ran away and you know the union kept hold of little round top because of this decision to fix bayonets when they didn't actually have any real way of, of winning if the confederates had turned around and gone we're going to stand and fight here you already know the fun of King's Island. Blue ice cream for lunch, catching your breath between screams on the beast. But this summer at King's Island, this is 50. Don't miss their 50th anniversary celebration all summer long with new shows, new food, and new fun. It's King's Island's biggest summer yet. And now through August 14th, King's Island is turning up the excitement with a daily 50 years of fun street party. It features dancers, music, and more commemorating the last 50 years. Make plans today at visitkingsisland.com. This episode is brought to you by Grant Thornton, an audit, tax, and advisory firm that gets that cookie-cutter thinking doesn't cut it. Grant Thornton listens, uncovering fresh ideas that help you harness every opportunity and stay ready for what's next. More at gt.com. Again, what ifs? They probably would have would have beat them the main the main men and fought them back and and took control of that that part of the battlefield, but as it turns out, they didn't and this is where the story continues now will you focus on on other parts of the battlefield now obviously as we know dan sickles has moved his infantry down to the peach orchard that falls very very quickly and it gives the the rebels a chance to to run up the hill basically now when this area falls the union now has a a mile long gap in their fish hook where if the confederates were able to get through that again this would cause major major issues obviously general meade spots this he does fill in the gaps and he's filling it with fresh soldiers so the rebels are obviously fighting fighting very hard they've been fighting all day you know hours and hours and hours of just constant fighting and now they see a gap they see an opportunity they try and take advantage of that but when they get there it's been reinforced by fresh soldiers soldiers who haven't 
seen a lot of battle that day some maybe not even any and you know the rebels are are tired they're worn out they're not in a position really to take full advantage of the Union's mistakes now some of the the bloodiest fighting of the day happens around this this area and it you know the certain parts of the battlefield change hands either side and no one really takes takes advantage of any mistakes you know the union don't chase the rebels away the rebels don't don't go for the gaps they don't do you know what i mean there's there's no real no one really wins that day the day 2 of gettysburg was described by general longstreet as the best 3 hours fought on any battlefield by any men and you know there just on that day alone there was 14,000 casualties just in one day and that just goes to show how much both sides you know how bloody and how brutal this battle really was you know to 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 just keep fighting and to just you know in reality these guys were some some of these guys were fighting regiments from their own state you know there's uh there's stories in in, in Gettysburg of um mainly the the Maryland division Maryland had a confederate army and they also had a union army so these were guys potentially who knew people on on the other side of the field you know they were shooting at people who they you know some of them grew up with and this is it's a very strange environment to try and understand when you look at the united states now and how united it is just to imagine how fractured even a state was that certain people had different beliefs just in that state so you would think that you know now the fighting has stopped on the left hand side that that's it that's the end of the fighting for that day um but it isn't the fighting on the second day goes into the evening and it goes into into dusk when it starts to get a little bit darker the the fighting carries on but it carries on on the right hand side uh by cemetery hill the confederates that are fighting on this side of the hill they are again these are fresh soldiers these are guys who haven't seen battle that day and they're fighting coming up cemetery hill fighting men who have who have seen battle that day you know they're fighting tired soldiers they're coming up a hill under cover of darkness and you know remember these guys they use muskets muskets carry a lot of smoke there was a lot of smoke on the battlefield it was very dark on the battlefield you know really the this was the confederates real chance to take cemetery hill meade again reinforces that and as soon as the he realizes that you know they're, they're potentially they're not going to hold this hill he reinforces that and and again they repel the uh repel the the rebels and they push them back again and they hold hold on to cemetery hill if they did lose cemetery hill again that would be the end of that battle because they would they would not have the advantage that they had slightly further down on the fish hook 
is an area called Culps Hill. So again, it might be so. It, it to put it into perspective, this would be as you look at a fish hook. This would be almost the the point, the sharp end of a fish hook. So it's right on the edge of of the battle. And General Johnson has four and a half thousand men who have not seen battle that day. And again, this is the cover of darkness. This is a covered by musket smoke and and everything coming up Culp's Hill to only 1,400 men. Now, the Union only have 1,400 men at this point, and the reason, because the men who were there were supposed to not see battle that day and were supposed to be there to cover any gaps in the Union line. Obviously, as we know from earlier in the story, that Dan Sickles moved his men out of position. This is where the reserves came from they came from Culp's Hill now the Union is vastly outnumbered they're outnumbered 3-1 to one on this battlefield and you know again although they've got the high ground it's very hard to see how they were going to lose how they were going to win this particular battle and the Confederates nearly take Culp's Hill you know they, they do break the left hand side of of the the line and again Meade has to reinforce his his flank now the advantage the union has is this is very late at night now the confederates for those of you that don't know wore grey the union wore blue it's very hard to tell the difference between those two colors in the dark and the more friendly fire that was happening the more unlikely either army was going to to win because they didn't know who they were shooting they didn't know what was happening and you know realistically it was sensible to stop fighting when it got that dark and at 10 o'clock they stopped fighting now to put it into perspective at this time this is the second day this is the end of fighting on the second day there are 37,000 casualties over the two days so just in two days of fighting there's 37,000 casualties and again really darkness is what saved the Union on that day so start of day three Robert Lee Robert E. Lee General Lee sees the battle that's happened the day before and he thinks the best opportunity to win is to hit the middle of the line they've tried either flank they've not hit the middle and he's going to try and take Culp's Hill so they send in the men and they go full bone full on and attack Culp's Hill at the start of the day now this fighting lasts for 7 hours before the Union finally manages to push General Johnson of the Confederates pushing back and away from the battlefield and this is aided by the fact that Meade again anticipates Robert Lee and anticipates what he's going to do and moves the reserve soldiers who went to help Sickles he he moves them back to Culp's Hill and reinforces that line now the Confederates are left with one division that hasn't seen battle over the three days 
one division with 12,000 men and this is under General George Pickett and this is where Lee makes a decision that has been probably one of the most famous decisions ever made in US history or in especially in US battle history and that is what is known as Pickett's Charge the problem with Pickett's Charge is General Meade is the first Union commander ever to outwit Robert E. Lee and to to know what he's going to do before he does it and the Union is more than ready for this attack in the centre and they know it's coming and they know that Pickett is the only man who hasn't sent his forces in therefore Meade knows the amount of soldiers and the fact that they're fresh so Robert E. Lee has seen that this plan he's got is not necessarily the best plan so what he decides to do is to roll in 160 cannons and to bombard the Union with cannon fire now the the plan is to overwhelm the Union with cannon fire and then pretty much just walk in and, and take it and take the, take the centre the Union have their own cannons I, I believe they had the numbers vary somewhere between 100 and 120 roughly uh, and they fire back now the advantage that the Union have over the the Confederates is the infrastructure that the Union have in their army the cannons that the Union have are more regulated they are more um, professionally made the cannonballs are all made to a set standard they're all made you know perfect to work perfect the confederates not so much they although they do have standards that they had to set um they they didn't have an infrastructure they didn't have the ability to create weapons the way the north did and therefore their cannons were not necessarily as accurate or as as good they didn't have the knowledge or not not the knowledge but they didn't have the ability to to trace what they were doing with their cannons whereas obviously the the north had a little bit more control over their cannons than than to what the the south did this artillery barrage uh was known as well to this day i believe is still the largest artillery barrage in the northern hemisphere or western hemisphere so just goes to show how you know how heavy this was you know this was hours of just relentless cannon after cannon after cannon after cannon and you know the south the southern states their their line of cannons was over a mile long just completely firing up the hill now what happens at this point is after quite a bit of time there is silence on the battlefield the the north you know they they stop firing they they stop returning fire and what this does this lulls them into a full sense of security that their artillery barrage has worked they now believe that they can just walk up 
and take the line. They've done all the damage. They've, you know, it's worked. The problem is, this is exactly what the Union were planning. They have stopped their cannon fire to allow the Confederate soldiers to march into firing range before they reopen the cannon, you know, reopen the cannons and, and start firing again. And unfortunately, General Pickett, General Lee, they they fall under this trap. Uh, they fall under it to the point that General Longstreet, who is the the on-field commander, um, he almost can't give the order. You know, there's stories that the film Gettysburg uh, does a good good portray of this, but it almost you know he's picket saying you know do we have the order to go can we go can we fight can we go and march and he almost can't bring himself to say yes and the reason is this is somewhere between a mile and half a mile of open field up a hill into cannon fire and musket fire and there is no ground there's no cover there is one fence in the middle of the field that they assume at this point would have been blown away turns out this fence was not blown away it was still there so now the confederate soldiers not only had to march across a field they had to climb over a fence and then carry on marching under constant fire from like i said from cannons from muskets um, they even had uh, a type of shell that was loaded into a cannon that had 28 mini cannonballs inside, which would fire out. And essentially, it was like a mini, well, I'd say mini, like a, a big shotgun. So, you know, one of these musket, one of these cannonballs would probably tear through about three or four people before it would stop. And there was 28 of them inside one canister in one cannon when they had 120 of these cannons it was just a a killing field there was no no real conceived way that the confederates could make it up that hill and that's why uh, general longstreet had such a hard hard time giving that order to attack they fight as hard as they can the confederates they they get over the the fence they make the charge up the hill and when they get within musket range they're met by thousands it Meade has reinforced the line that was already there with 10,000 more troops um you know there's no there's no numbers out of how many of the 12,000 of Pickett's men actually got to the union lines but i can't imagine it was very many um when they got there again you know they were they were gunned down. They were in a position where they couldn't really do very much. Um, another advantage the the South had, uh, sorry, the North had over the South was a lot of the North soldiers had repeating rifles, so they would fire more than one round. Um, a lot of the Southern uh, Army had single shot muskets so it had to be reloaded. Um, you know, there just really wasn't. They, they just didn't stand a chance and when they got to the the front there was obviously hand-to-hand combat as well and uh, where they're outnumbered quite 
quite drastically at this point. You know, they were probably outnumbered maybe two to one anyway. And then by the time that they've crossed this the killing field, almost, uh, you know, how how many actually made it there? You, you could you could argue the point that you know maybe only a couple of thousand would actually have got to that front where they'd probably be outnumbered maybe five or six to one if not more so um again there's no real numbers of how many made it up the hill um but again i can't imagine there was very many that made it figures estimate that you know not even half of the men from pickett's charge ended up you know coming back um and it wasn't it wasn't a charge you know it's it's called pickett's charge it, it certainly wasn't a charge they they walked you know this was a boggy field it was a meadow it was open ground they certainly couldn't really run it's the middle of july it was quite hot um i believe the the 3rd of july or the 2nd of july 3rd of july was was roughly the hottest days of the year um you know they weren't these guys weren't running and to be fair, you know, you run a mile, you're certainly not going to be in a position to fight when you get to the top. So they would have walked and 12,000 men, I mean, they, they were target pack, excuse me, they were target practice for, for the union and, and very, very easy to be picked off. And, you know, when, obviously when they, they retreated and run back down the hill, Robert E. Lee realized that, you know, that, they weren't going to win this battle. They, this was this was a battle they'd lost, and this was his biggest attempt to win the war, biggest opportunity to win the war, and you know he he failed. And it wasn't his only opportunity. You know there were other opportunities that that the Confederates had to win the war, but this was the biggest opportunity and, and the best opportunity that that they had to win, and. You know, it, there were different factors behind it. Um, again, with every part of history, you know, things could have changed. Some simple things could have could have happened. You know, if if Texas and Alabama had taken Little Round Top, you'd have been talking about a different, a completely different battle. If uh, Meade hadn't seen Sickles' mistake when he did, it could have been a different battle. Um, if they, if Robert E. Lee had, you know, taken taken the high ground like they was they was they should have done after they drove the troops drove the Union out of Gettysburg, um, it would have been a different battle. There, there were a lot of ifs and buts, and you know, that was his biggest opportunity to to win the war and to to put an end to it. And you know, really, after that, the the South that was the closest they ever got to Washington. They didn't get any closer to that, any closer than that. Sorry, to to Washington. And you know, it it's a. I mean, I'm sure, I'm I, I'm sure that you guys know probably more about this than I do. Like I said, I'm sure this battle is is ingrained into. American society. I know there are many, you know, films about it. Um, I know you guys are taught about the the American Civil War, you know, in school and things like that. So I know you guys obviously know this story inside out. Which, but I mean, for me, this is one of the one of the greatest 
stories in history. I absolutely adore the American Civil War. Um, I think it's really, really fascinating. And it's something that, that intrigues me because it's not my history. As probably as much as with a lot of you guys who listen who aren't from the UK find when I do the British history. I know you guys probably prefer that to, to the American stuff because it's not what you what you know so this is why i enjoy this one because it's not it's not something that we're taught um the the battle of gettysburg like i said obviously um the bloodiest battle in in american history there was uh estimated around fifty one thousand casualties just on that on that battlefield alone so um it was quite a quite a serious part of the civil war and quite a big a big history and a big you know a big part of that that war where i don't know i don't really know how to describe it like i said from from a british standpoint it's not not something we're taught and it's now world famous and it's something that lives in your memory and i think you know one of the the greatest things that that came out of that was was Lincoln's two minute speech now Lincoln's speech the Gettysburg address was on the 19th of November 1863 so it was a you know four and a half months after the actual battle but it is probably one of the most famous speeches in all American history um you know four score and seven years ago obviously referring to the declaration of independence conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal so you know he's he's saying that he's almost there saying about slavery and how you know every man is created the same you know we are all the same we are all cut from the same cloth and you know it is one of the the most famous speeches in american history and although it you know it happened 4 months after the battle it you know it, it sort of it was a nice speech that has gone down in history and and sort of put a bit of a a lighter a lighter you know more positive note on on the bloodiest battle in american history and you know to to think that looking back how the american civil war was perceived or how it's being you know perceived now um is is something that you know you should never you should never lose sight of of history you know even the end of the civil war where everybody assumed that you know there would be a massive like celebration that the union had been saved and and all of this and even um you know even lincoln at the the ceremony at, at the the parades he ordered the bands to play the song dixie which is the the confederate anthem you know as a sign of respect you know the these guys had respect for each other to the the point where you know men some some towns in america were completely wiped out of their young men through this civil war and Lincoln realized that and he he had to bring the country back together and and you know you should never ever forget 
that type of history and, and the Battle of Gettysburg and the American Civil War, whether you are Confederate Union, whether you believe in I hope no one listening to my podcast believes in slavery. Uh, if you do, please find another podcast to listen to because, you know, I don't want you as a fan. Sorry to say that, but that's my opinion. Um, but, you know, if you, you, a lot of people have, you know, they, they, they love their heritage. And if you are from a southern state in America and you do love your heritage, there's nothing wrong with that. And I don't think anybody should ever tell you any different because I'm English. I love my country. I love England. Um, and I know, and let's be honest, England has done a lot more shitty things in America. Um, we've, we've been pretty bad throughout history, but do you know what? That's, we learn from that and we should always learn from history. We should never ever erase history. Um, and for me personally, you know, we learn from that and we learn how to to change for the better i mean we learn so much from the american civil war and hopefully you know we can we can still learn from things and we can still learn from it and progress as a society but you know for me i love this i love the american civil war um if any any of you guys want to let me know what you thought of this episode if you liked it if you didn't like it if you'd rather hear more on american history let me know if you want to hear more on british history let me know i know some of you guys want to hear a bit of australian history so that will be something that will be coming up soon um so that's you know we're gonna cover cover quite a bit um got a bit of a fun one for you next week um this will be we will be going back to British history for you British history fans so we'll be going back to British history next week um, get on the Facebook group get on This Week in History um, on Facebook email me twihpod at gmail.com and we shall play the game I'll be putting a picture up hopefully in the next couple of days get you to have a look let me know what you think let me know what specifically in history we're going to be covering Um there's no prizes unfortunately but you know get yourself get yourselves on there and you get the prize of knowing that you know your history that's uh that's the prize um for those of you that do want to support us on patreon get yourselves over there it's uh just patreon.com type in this week in history comes up with the same picture that you will see on your podcast app or on the facebook group click on that you can pledge anything from i think it's two dollars a month uh you will get access to some separate shows uh that we that we do specifically for patreon um and for those of you that are interested we or i will be doing on patreon a few uh video episodes that will be going up um when i do my travels so uh, this year we are off to as a family we're off to scotland so i'll be covering some of the castles in scotland uh, via video um, and next year i will be making a trip to auschwitz uh, the concentration camp in poland um, when i go there again i'll be making um, videos these videos will go on to patreon so if you are interested and do want to have a look do want to watch them get yourselves over to patreon like i said it's only two dollars a month um 
or like I say, you can you can pledge more than that, but it starts at two dollars a month. So get yourselves over there and get supporting us. Uh, thank you very much, guys. Just remember, we all have history, so make yours great. Bye bye. In the heat of the moment, you're not just keeping it calm; you're keeping it cool too, with an ice cold cold brew. And not just any cold brew, but one that's slow steeped and mixed with brown sugar and molasses flavor. With a cold foam infused with brown sugar coolness and a cinnamon sugar sprinkle on top. That's keeping it calm, cool, and cold brewed. With Dunkin's new brown sugar cream cold brew, America runs on Dunkin'. Price and participation may vary. Limited time offer. Terms apply. Welcome to America, the land of junk sleep, where it's bedtime, but you're double booked. Here, there's always one more deadline to meet, episode to watch, or meme to share. The world may not want you to sleep, but we do. Only the sleep experts at Mattress Firm can help you find the right bed at the right price. Unjunk your sleep. In store or online at mattressfirm.com today. In the heat of the moment, you're not just keeping it calm, you're keeping it cool too. With an ice cold cold brew, and not just any cold brew, but one that's slow steeped and mixed with brown sugar and molasses flavor. With a cold foam infused with brown sugar coolness and a cinnamon sugar sprinkle on top. That's keeping it calm, cool, and cold brewed. With Dunkin's new brown sugar cream cold brew, America runs on Dunkin'. Price and participation may vary. Limited time offer. Terms apply. Something you probably do know. Progressive can not only offer you a great price when you bundle home and auto, they offer you round-the-clock protection. Something you probably don't know. The average oak tree branch can hold 70 pounds. Something you probably do know. Your neighbor is building their kid a treehouse. Something you probably don't know. A falling treehouse would take out your whole fence. Bundle your home and auto with Progressive and get more than a great price. Get round-the-clock protection. Something you know for the things you don't know. Coverage from Progressive Casualty Insurance Company, affiliates, and third-party insurers and subject to policy terms. Bundle discount not available in all states or situations.